Last Sunday when we gathered for worship, I began the sermon by handing out cash. I'm not doing that this morning. So if any of you came for that reason, you're going to be disappointed. But if you want to hear more about the unchanging, faithful, sovereign, and just God, you will not be disappointed because we come again to a text that points us in that direction. Would you please make your way to the book of Romans again this morning and find Romans chapter 9 in your copy of the Christian New Testament. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, was used by God to write the letter to the church that was gathering in Rome. And that letter is what we have been studying in depth for quite some time now. We're more than halfway. And it's not, it's not only, it's not just an ancient letter. It's part of God's word. It's part of God's communication to us. It's profitable for us today. It's fully inspired communication from the God of this from the God of the universe. We've summarized the theme of Romans as communicating the undeserved, unmatched, and unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the sake of organizing our thoughts, we've, we've listed some divisions to these 16 chapters, and we've worked our way through the first three, and we're there now in, in the fourth division, where we're referring to the defense of the gospel. So Paul has taken time to explain the priority of the gospel, that it's the power of God to salvation, He's explained the heart of the gospel, that it's not by our works, um, it's not by something that we could do, it's not just for Jews, it's for Jews and Gentiles. In fact, he's going to talk about that a little bit more in chapter 9. Um, we, he's taken four chapters to assure us of, of the gospel, that once we are in Christ, we are in Christ. And now in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is teaching us about the defense of the gospel, and we read in these three chapters, about a tension that exists between God's sovereignty and His justice. We read about the promises that were made to the nation of Israel, and we read about God's plan for the gospel to go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Would you please follow along as I begin reading from Romans chapter number 9. I'm going to begin at the beginning of the chapter. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul reminds us in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now here's our text for this morning. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who, are, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If you are not yet a Christian, I've been praying that God will use his word, as we always pray, to draw people to himself in salvation. Maybe that will be you today. And if you are already a Christian, these kind of passages are not just for academic growth in theology. Although there are some deep thoughts and strong theological um, teachings that we should glean from these passages. But rather, there is a very real response that these verses call Christians to. Worship and thanksgiving. Holy living. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, we began last week with verses 14 through 18, teach us that, the, that God's sovereignty in election, uh, God's, the, the sovereignty of God's election in salvation, it both challenges our trust in God and strengthens our trust in God. Our finite minds don't understand everything about God's sovereignty. But our infinite souls do find hope in God's sovereignty. Last week as we worked through verses 14 through 18, we, we noted that God's sovereign justice is questioned. In verse 14, he says, is there injustice on God's part? And then Paul, in verse 15, gives the illustration of Pharaoh and it illustrates God's sovereign justice. And then he gives in verse 16 a bit of an explanation is that God's justice is, is meted out, but it's not based on human will or an exertion, but on God who has mercy. In verse 17, he tells us that God does this for a purpose, 
to show his power that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then in verse 18, he defends it. He kind of, he kind of buttons down and says, so then God has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. The passage continues this morning with four more points about God's sovereign justice. So today is kind of just an extension, part two of what we began last week. We begin with the idea that God's sovereign justice unbounded. In verse nine, verses 19 through 21, we, we see Paul asking a rhetorical question that actually is accusatory to God. How can someone be held responsible How can anyone be blamed for their unbelief and for their sin when their eternal destiny has already been determined? That's the question that Paul brings up. Stated another way, he says, we could say, if God is completely sovereign as demonstrated in the Old and the New Testaments, how can someone resist God's will? That's how Paul says it. We know that left to ourselves, we only deserve condemnation. But we also know that our human will has, has, uh, has a part. We are created with this. John, in, in his gospel, chapter 6, says, uh, he, 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 he says, he tells us what Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or in Romans, we also read that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question that Paul is asking here, who can resist his will, calls God's godness into question. So Paul answers, who do you think you are to talk to God like that? The Apostle Paul never does give an explicit answer to that question about who can resist God's will. Instead, Paul says that God has the right He has the right to do as he wants to do in order to reveal mercy to those whom he has chosen. Now, if we are completely honest with ourselves this morning, that's not a fully satisfying answer to our finite minds. Paul says, who are you to charge God? You are you, but God is God. Then Paul gives an illustration uh, to, to help us think through that. We have several artists in our congregation. I think that God did that to keep the rest of us humble. Because, um, yeah, I don't know, I can't draw, I can't paint, I can't, I can't really do anything artistic. Uh, one of our artists is Meg Gross. She's been doing pottery work for a bunch of years. I even have a, a mug that has the Harvest Bible Church logo on it. Isn't that cool? And I'd, I didn't confirm this with, with Meg in advance, but I'd, will, I'd be willing to bet that none of her vases or her mugs, I think that's what called a mug. Is that a mug, Meg? Yeah, okay, it's a mug. I store pens and pencils in on my desk. Um, but I would be willing to bet that none of her vases or mugs or other vast creations have ever looked her in the eye and said, Hey, why did you make me like this? Why did you put the handle in this direction? Right? That's ludicrous. We understand that. Meg is the potter. She's the creator. She's the owner. She is the one who is, who is absolutely unbound. She can do as she pleases with her work of art. God is the potter. God is the creator. 
God is the only one who is absolutely unbound, and he is free to do as he pleases in his work of salvation. Some of the questions regarding God's sovereign election and, and predestination ultimately go unanswered, and we need to be okay with that. Here's a little bit of a longer quotation. I hope it's not too hard for us to receive as I read it for you this morning from Martin Luther. Mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful. And therefore, you make to yourself a God of your own fancy who hardens nobody, condemns nobody, pities everybody. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves, but must, by necessity of their natural constitution, continue in sin and remain children of wrath. Luther concludes, the answer is, God is incomprehensible throughout, and therefore his justice, as well as his other attributes, must be incomprehensible. You are you. God is God. To fully understand God, we would need to be equal with God. And we are not equal with God. The Apostle Paul doesn't give the explicit answer to this question, who can resist God's will? Instead, Paul says that God has the right to do as he wants in order to reveal mercy to those he has chosen. It does take faith, doesn't it? If it were all understandable, where would faith even come into play? Friends, God is God, and we are not. The sovereignty of God's election and salvation both challenges our trust in God and strengthens our trust in God. Our finite minds don't understand everything about God's sovereignty, but our infinite souls do find hope in God's sovereignty. So God's sovereign justice is unbounded. It is not bound by human reasoning. Next in the passage, we see God's sovereign justice demonstrated, and we'll see this demonstrated in three ways in the text. Paul lays out some of the reasoning of, of this section, and the apostle explains that, that God's saving work, God's sovereign justice, demonstrates some things about God. Specifically, four, I said three, four ways, uh, uh, demonstrations of God's sovereign justice. First, he demonstrates his wrath. Look at verse number 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, God desires to show his anger? God allowed sin into the creation to give himself the opportunity to display his anger against sin. Part of God being holy, part of God being perfect, is that he is angered about sin. Through his election of some, but not of others, God will demonstrate his wrath on those who do not repent of sin. If anyone truly understood the wrath of God, they would never want to experience the wrath of God. Secondly, we see that Paul, Paul tells us that God's sovereign justice is demonstrated by his, by his power. God allowed sin to enter the world to make known his power. We see the power of God in, in his judgment of sin. He flooded the earth. We 
can see it in the plagues in Egypt, Achan's punishments, the fiery judgment described in Revelation. His, his sovereign justice not only demonstrates his wrath, it demonstrates his power. It demonstrates his wrath with omnipotence. So the power of God we sing of when we consider God's creation is also seen in destruction. Have you ever watched a, a video of a building, a skyscraper maybe, that was being taken down to build another one or whatever or, uh, in, in a big city? Building implodes. It's powerful, right? Power is not only seen in something being created like we see and we sing of in, in God creating the world, but power is seen in something imploding. The power of God's wrath on the condemned will be unmatched because God is all-powerful. God will unleash his anger with full power on those who are condemned. It will be a demonstration of his sovereign justice. His, he also demonstrates his patience. Again, in verse number 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So this patience is for those for those who have been prepared for destruction. This is, this is not teaching that God has prepared them for destruction. Rather, through their own rejection, they are ready for a place, a place that God has prepared, a place that we would call hell. God has waited. He has been patient before doling out his wrath. Christian, for us, it's always a good exercise to think about the patience of God. To remind yourself of how patient God has been with you. I know a lot of Christians that forget about God's patience. They forget that God has removed their sins as far as the east is from the west. In fact, God is, is more patient with you than you are with yourself. And when you wallow in your guilt and in your failure, when you, when you keep berating yourself because of your sin, you are forgetting about the patience that God has already shown to you. God could have given up on you a long time ago. God could have said, that person does, has not been faithful. I will turn my back on them. But he hasn't done that for you. He has been patient. God is, is even demonstrating his patience for those who await destruction and condemnation. And then we see in verse 23 another demonstration, and this, this is where it's all building to. He says that God has, he has shown his, verse 22, he has shown his, his wrath, his power, his patience. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God demonstrates patience with those prepared for destruction, and he does it with a purpose. He does it in order to make known the riches of his glory to shine even brighter on the vessels that he has prepared for mercy. God allowed sin to come into the world to demonstrate his anger, to demonstrate his power, and also to demonstrate his glory by giving kindness to the people that he has prepared beforehand for glory. One theologian said it this way, we must never study the doctrine of predestination in the abstract. In the final analysis, although predestination certainly involves God's sovereignty, 
the doctrine is about the riches of God's glory. His glory is seen in mercy. His glory is seen in His holiness. His, his glory is seen in His justice. What is more glorious than this? It's all about the grace of God. God took you from a corrupt mass of clay and made you into a vessel of glory. He has set his love on you and he has put you into his family for all of eternity. You are a vessel of mercy for the glory of God. Christian, if you have experienced God's sovereign justice in a saving way, then give thanks. He has chosen you to be his child. You are not more worthy than someone else. None of us are worthy. So if you have been born again, your life should reflect your gratitude to him. The sovereignty of God's election and salvation, it, it both challenges our trust in God and encourages or grows or strengthens our trust in God. Our finite minds don't understand everything about God's sovereignty, but our infinite souls do find hope in God's sovereignty. God's sovereign justice is unbounded. It is demonstrated. God's sovereign justice is extended. And we see this especially in verse 24 and following. God, the, the, uh, Paul says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. His sovereign justice, this election of individuals for salvation, this display of his glory for vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand is, all that he has, is for all that he has called, both Jews and Gentiles. God hasn't limited his kindness to just the Jewish people. God has extended his saving ways beyond the special people that he chose to bring the Messiah. God has extended his sovereign justice from the Jews to the Gentiles also. Paul now takes us on a trip down memory lane to the Old Testament. And he's going to refer to a couple of different prophets here in the remainder of our text this morning. But first he goes to a place in the Old Testament that's jam-packed with the beauty of God showing mercy to those who were the least likely recipients. Paul takes us to the book of Hosea. Now, I preached through the book of Hosea a few years ago, and I know that you all remember everything that I said in that series. But in case you um, have forgotten a couple of things, let me remind you of a little bit of that context. Hosea was instructed by God to marry Gomer, and she was a, a prostitute at the time or became one after marriage. And God wanted Hosea to be married to an adulterous person. That was God's plan for Hosea. Her unfaithfulness was a picture of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness to God. Hosea and Gomer had children, and Hosea had a son, and God instructed Hosea on to how to name his children, and he had a son whose name means God sows, or like scattering of seed. He sows, scattering of seed. Hosea had a daughter named, uh, the, her, her name meant no mercy, not pity. Hosea had another son whose name meant not my people. 
All three of those names showed God's attitude towards Israel. At that point, the chosen people were for a time scattered like seeds, unpitied, forsaken by God. But God promised that his people would not be permanently forsaken. We read in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 19, I will betroth you to, to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Just as Hosea one day brought Gomer on, on, bought her on the open markets, naked and full of shame, so one day God will redeem Israel. That's his promise. But until then, God will treat those who are not his people as his people. Israel was scattered and unpitied and forsaken. And none of that is surprising or inconsistent with God's sovereign justice. God promised that through Hosea that, that those who are not my people would, by his gracious plan, someday become my people. Don't we see this consistently throughout the scriptures? The Lord calling those that we might least expect, the vulnerable, the hurting. Ruth in the Old Testament. Levi, a tax collector. But it's not limited to biblical times. We see this happening in our world today as well. Over and over and over again, God calls people of all kinds to himself. We mentioned Levi, the tax collector. We know another IRS guy that God called to himself in salvation. His name was Larry Hodges. God extended his sovereign justice so that now, even today, Larry is forever in the presence of the Lord. God was never limited by the, the covenant he made with Abraham to, to only rescue people of that bloodline. God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. God extended mercy to the Gentiles. Revelation describes a future scene in heaven where there will be people from all people groups before the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Friends, God's track record is to confound human expectations by dispensing grace freely and uplifting the undeserving. That's God's track record, to dispense grace freely. To, to, he extends it. It's not only for a certain people group. And that should be our track record also. Our lives should be filled with dispensing grace freely and uplifting the undeserving. Do you extend grace only to certain people? Do they have to be people of a certain race or a certain political party? Do they have to be people of a certain level of education or a church denomination or age or fill in another category? Let's be people that dispense grace the same way that we have received grace, freely, undeserving. Does someone need to, to measure up for you to show kindness to them? Does your life exemplify the free grace of God? I was thinking about this in 
different categories even this week. Parenting, it's tricky, isn't it? There needs to be consequences to sinful behavior. There also needs to be grace for sinful behavior. Or what about in our culture? What if someone declares their pronouns and is living in a lifestyle that is in complete opposition to God's word? Is your, they made their bed, now they can sleep in it, attitude showing through? That's not the attitude that God has shown to us. So why, why would we show it to someone else? Obviously, there are times when people will in, in face the consequences for their choices, but brothers and sisters, let's do well. Let's be careful to lean into opportunities to be dispensers of grace. If God has extended his grace to you, if you have been made a child of God, then you are called. You belong to Jesus. As the hymn says, in a love that cannot cease, I am his. He is mine. You know, at first take, when we initially think about God's sovereignty in our salvation, that he has mercy on some, but not on all, we are a little unsettled by that, probably. And we've been talking about this for two or three weeks as the passage uh, lends itself in this direction, in this theme. And so we've been talking about it for two or three Sundays now. And it's, it could be a little unsettling to consider the unconditional election of God in salvation. But in reality, God's sovereignty is our security. Because if there is nothing in us but God's good pleasure to bring us grace then nothing can take us out of God's grace. Sovereignty challenges our trust in God and strengthens our trust in God. Paul closes out the section by giving to us God's sovereign justice promised. And again, he's going to go to the Old Testament to the prophets. And he's aware of the Jews' knowledge of the Old Testament, so he pulls from another prophetic book. This time it's Isaiah he's quoting in verses uh, 27 and following. He, uh, he says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So he, he reminds us, he gives us some, 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 some reminders of God's promises, and he says that there's going to be a remnant. I think that we would all be astounded if we knew the number of Abraham's descendants, right? So that would be a, a huge number. Paul tells us that a whole bunch of Israel has rejected God along the way. It was true in Moses' day, it was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. But Paul also quotes Isaiah, who predicted that a remnant of Israel would be saved. But not everyone. What did Jesus say? Enter by the gate, enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is a warning to the visible church. Not everyone that's visible in a church setting is in God's kingdom. Just because your name is on a church role, membership role, or that you're in a connection group, or uh, that you've been baptized, or that you have have family, uh, Christian heritage, that doesn't mean you're part of the true church. The true church, the invisible church, is made up of all who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ's death 
and resurrection. Paul also tells us in verse 28 that God's sovereign justice is promised in, in, a, in a sentence. God is going to carry out his sentence fully and without delay. So just because a remnant would be saved did not mean that God's justice would not be meted out. When the Babylonians took Israel captive, God's justice was complete, it was quick, and only a few, the remnant of true believers, escaped. But the sentence was carried out. And then in verse 29, there's a reminder. Paul refers to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabbath, God, God's all-encompassing lordship of the universe. God has kindly left a remnant apart that we would, apart from that remnant, we would not experience saving grace. We would all have been like facing the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. So from the offspring, Israel would have been eliminated aside from that, just like Sodom and Gomorrah had been. If the Lord had not left a remnant, all of us would experience that same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because through Isaac came J Jacob and then Judah and Boaz and David and eventually Jesus, the promised one. And it's only through Jesus that any of us have hope. Friend, I want to make sure that we all understand that Jesus died on a cross. And when he died on the cross, he experienced the full power of God's anger against sin. It wasn't his sin. He absorbed God's anger for sin that was not his. It belonged to others. It was our sin. And he died. And then three days later, he, he arose and yet another demonstration of his omnipotence. And it is only through faith in Jesus, through his faith in his, in his death, that he, his, his payment appeased God's anger. It's only faith in Jesus that any of us have hope not to face the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. The sovereignty of God's election and salvation both challenges our trust in God and strengthens our trust in God. Our finite minds don't understand everything about God's sovereignty. But our infinite souls do find hope in God's sovereignty. The sovereign justice of God challenges us and grows us in our trust. Christian, you can trust God's election for you for salvation. You can trust because he is holy and he is merciful and he is just. You can trust because he has kept a remnant. If God has shown you mercy, if you have been born again, if, if God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, if God looks at you and sees the blood of his son atoning for your sins, if God has changed your eternal status from death to life, then let us live our lives with full thanksgiving, with singular worship. Instead of loving the things of this world, if God has done this for us, let us love him and worship him with singular focus. Let us run from sin. And let us love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's bow our heads.